I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 13 this morning. If you do not have a copy of the Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you. It would be good for you to see what God has to say, to not just take my word, but to see it for yourself. Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's go to him in prayer. God, as we turn now to the reading and now preaching of your word, Father, I pray that you'll help me not to speak in error, but to be faithful to you and to your text. Father, I pray that it will not fall on deaf ears, but you will open the ear. Help us to listen to what you have for us. Open our hearts. May your truth take root inside of us. Planted deeply, Father, and I ask that you will strengthen your people today. Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you, may you use this now to bring them to yourself. It's in God's name I pray. Amen. I do want to thank you for having me here this morning. Stafford Baptist has been a partner with Redeemer since we planted I am thankful for your support, uh, mainly your prayers, but also the financial support. And yes, the Lord has brought Redeemer to a place where we do not need that support, but I hope you will continue to be generous and find another church plant that you can support and advance God's kingdom that way. Redeemer has been in the book of Isaiah for a year and a half now. It has been good to just sit in a book and to soak up what God has to say. There is so much in a book where you could spend hours, months, years in the same book and just keep gaining from God's word. When Kelton asked me to preach this morning, I considered this passage here in Isaiah because while it was written long ago... And it might seem obscure being in the middle of a chapter in the middle of the book. What it deals with is so relevant today. 
It's about the danger of complaining. And this is not just an ancient problem, it's a human problem, isn't it? And honestly, we're all guilty of it. And when we are given this passage here, and we have our eyes open to its truth, we see that it is to help us see past our problems and our difficulties and find God who does everything in his own way. And that is better for us. We are better off trusting God in all our days. He doesn't always remove our problems, but his grace works in our faith to strengthen us, and that is what we need in our circumstances. Let me tell you a little bit about the book of Isaiah, give you a little bit of background here. Some call it the great work of the Old Testament, because it takes all that happens in the Old Testament and puts it on a clear path toward the cross. You cannot miss the cross of Christ in Isaiah. There's wonderful passages about Jesus' birth of the suffering servant, of his resurrection and his exaltation. Mark, the New Testament writer, begins his book by telling us that Isaiah is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The overall theme of Isaiah is the clearest in Isaiah 12, verse 2, where God says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Now this echoes the meaning of Isaiah's own name, which means the salvation of Yahweh, or what I've named in our series at Redeemer, the Lord saves. Isaiah is a prophetic book about God saving his people, even though we don't deserve it. God tells us he will bring his people to himself so that they will know him and become satisfied. The very things that are missing when we complain and grumble. God wants to remove all of that so that we are now face to face with him. That in itself is amazing if you just step back and think that God wants you face to face with him. But how God brings us to himself is even more amazing. Isaiah was given a vision of the Messiah, a deliverer. And then told what to say to the people. And we now know that his vision was of Jesus Christ, of his redemption, and now what we receive as a gift through faith. Here in the middle of Isaiah, after a long series of judgments that takes up the first half of the book, we're told of King Cyrus of the Persians. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 45, God calls Cyrus his anointed. Now this may seem strange to you, as it did to me. Cyrus would free the Israelites who had become enslaved by the Babylonians. The thing is, Cyrus is not a Jew. He was a pagan king. That doesn't fit the separation between God's people and the pagans. Pagans are unclean 
and ungodly. But the thing is, the Israelites themselves were ungodly. By this time in chapter 45, they were not pursuing God. They were more concerned with what was all around them, and they complained about it all. They weren't considering God's holiness or upholding His name. They had become just like the pagans. They were complainers with the view set on the world and what only happens in their life. What danger this is for any of us. Think of a family taking a road trip. Every parent can relate to the challenge of taking a road trip with the kids. Loading the car with everyone's luggage, packing everything in to where there's just a small area to see out the back, driving for hours and hours crammed together, and where the kids are asking, are we there yet? Maybe you have a memory of asking that yourself. Maybe you're the one that always needs to know how much time is left to get there. Many of us laugh at it now, and maybe it's one of your family's favorite stories to tell. And when the kids, when the kids first ask, are we there yet, most parents are understandable and gracious, especially to the younger ones. But as it's asked over and over by the older ones, we all know the potential, and I say the potential, of a heightened, elevated response. The reason is questioning that goes from a child knowing that the child doesn't know what's going on to a child not being pleased or being catered to. Them not liking what's happening to them or where they're at, how things are, and even becoming contentious and belligerent. And at that point, it takes everything in a parent not to snap, doesn't it, parents? And to address the child in the right way. And we congratulate parents that deal with their children because it's wrong for the child to continue to be like that. To the same effect, it's the same issue with a person who complains. No one likes a complainer. They show themselves to be all about themselves. A complainer is a person who has their own interest at the forefront of their mind. And it takes everything in someone else not to snap and to address them in the right way. To ignore it is wrong and it doesn't help the complainer because what it conveys when we don't do anything is that it conveys that it's okay for them to be that way. They need corrected. This relates directly to believers. And every Christian has the potential to be like that older child who knows better or to be like the Israelites in chapter 45. We all have the temptation to be a complainer. You see, it's one thing to ask questions to God, 
But it's on a whole nother level when our questions really disguise our complaints to him. The danger of doing that is that it, it accuses God of doing wrong. It is not an act of faith of trusting him or his providence. Complaining, grumbling, is faithless discontent. It's belly aching and it's sinful. And if we're honest, we disguise this sometimes, don't we? We tell each other, I'm not questioning God, I just don't understand. There's a difference between seeking understanding and what you don't know and being critical or even blaming God. Earlier in the chapter, we're told that God is the only God. God said in verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. What God is saying is that he is the only divine being. Only he knows all things. Only he directs this world. And he does it as he sees fit. And we are to trust his loving care. Even when it doesn't seem to fit what we think should happen. He tells us throughout Isaiah that he will use whomever he chooses as his instruments. Sometimes pagan kings, sometimes non-believers to accomplish his will. He has eternal rights to preserve his creation however he wants because, and the only reason that you and I need, because he's God. He says that everyone exists to know him. And on our own, in our own lives, we will have circumstances and situations and experiences that he gives so that we will know him and know him better. He shapes life that way. And sometimes it's in unexpected ways. In verse 7, even calamity is created by God for his sovereign purposes. So in our passage here, the prophet is restraining people who want to complain about life being different than what they want, especially when they are in times of adversity or unexpected circumstances. Or maybe they have to deal with someone that they don't want to deal with. People need to understand that they have a limited view of life. Do you realize that this morning? Your view of life is only one small piece of all of life. We need to trust the only one who has the panoramic view of all of life. Now Isaiah is talking to those who scoff at the idea of God causing calamity or those struggling to accept that God would use pagan men who don't know him. Questioning God for using disaster or Cyrus, a pagan king, to deliver them. It doesn't fit their idea of God. And for you and I today, on this side of the cross, we know that Cyrus was a precursor to the real deliverer. 
And so this warning about complaining is to us on this side of the cross about how God planned and worked salvation in Jesus Christ, the way he did it, and complain maybe about our lives now in Christ. We are not to grumble and fight against God or murmur and criticize his ways. The flesh in us prompts us to grumble. Not only does this set us against God, what God is doing here, the warning is God looking out for us about grumbling. And what he's saying is because complaining to God ultimately leads to unbelief. And I don't want that for you this morning. It takes us from trusting God. Complaining takes it from trusting in God to doubting God to blaming God. And that is so dangerous. Isaiah tells us not to complain to our maker about how life is. We are not to criticize the creator or his creation. But it doesn't stay there. Even more importantly, we are not to question the Savior and his redemptive ways. And I will show you how this passage goes from God's sovereignty in creation and all things in life to the deeper and more urgent and more important issue of God's sovereign right in redemption. We go from all of life to eternal salvation in today's text. Not small topics, I know. But we trust God will use this for our good. Amen? And the message to us is don't question God or his ways. And it's given as four lessons to us. I'll present them as four truths to remember when we are tempted to grumble and complain. They each start with the letter R to make it easy for us. Number one, remember your role in your relationship with God. This is the biggest one, and we'll spend most of our time here in this first truth. Number two, remember, remain rather, remain humble toward God. Number three, revere God in his glory. And number four, relish God's good and perfect plan. So the first lesson to remember when we are tempted to grumble and complain is in verses 9 and 10, and it's this. Remember your role in your relationship with God. These two verses are warnings to us. You'll notice that both verse 9 and 10 begin the same way. They begin with the word woe. Not woe as in slow down, but woe, you need to stop this type of questioning, the kind that doesn't seek understanding, because what it's doing is really putting yourself higher than God. And it's dangerous to continue that line of thought. You see, it's a miserable condition to be in, to think we can disapprove anything of God. 
It's living in a fool's paradise, unaware of the misery that will come upon us if we continue. This is a warning from God to his people not to take offense in how he does things. Don't question his eternal rights. We do not want to be on opposite sides from God. Why? Because it won't work out for us. If we put ourselves against the omnipotence and the omniscience of God, it's like giving an infant a spoon of baby food and telling the baby to eat. We all know what will happen, don't we? The baby will have food all over itself. It'll make a mess of things and it will probably choke on what it does eat. That's us trying to scoop up God's work and trying to make some kind of sense that we come up with, whoa, we don't want to do that, we'll choke. Honestly, though, at first glance, when we put ourselves in the position of the Jews, it's not hard to think that this prophecy at the beginning of the chapter, what it sounded like about Cyrus delivering them, what it sounded like to the Jews returning from Babylonian exile would sound like another exodus. More miracles being performed for them, another Moses leading them to the promised land. So it would seem unreal to them to have a pagan deliverer that Isaiah just told them about, someone who didn't know the Lord. From their perspective, it didn't fit the covenant God made with them. But that's the wrong perspective to have. We always step on the wrong path when we set out in our own perspective. The prophecy of Cyrus gives us insight in how we are to look at our own lives. Not in our own perspective, not in our own finite, limited view of life, but always looking for those indications and pointers that God gives about his view of life. By using Cyrus, he certainly shows that he is God. The Israelites had problems with idols, but God says the idols of this world cannot choose non-worshippers to do their bidding. Idols are not able to do that. But God, who is sovereign over all, has both the right and the creative power to use and to do whatever he decides to do. Who are we to question his ways? We are in no position to dictate to God how things ought to be. This world is not our creation. It's his creation, his Alone, He's the one who has dominion and sovereign power and the only one who determines the way your life and my life will be. When we're tempted to complain or if we disapprove or we say of our circumstances and experiences and situations that they don't fit God's ways, what we're doing is challenging the role of God. We are refusing to let God be God. And in essence, what we're doing is saying we ought to be God, that we know better. As long as God is consistent with his own character, 
And it fits his purpose for creation, and it's his part, his plan, it's part of his plan of salvation. We are better off trusting him, submitting to him, and following him. Than if we, the created, were to question or tell the creator how he ought to carry out the preserving and working of his creation. Now in verse 9, it says, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? That verse may sound familiar to you. It's similar to what's said in the New Testament in Romans 9 verse 20. There the apostle Paul writes this to the church in Rome. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? If anyone thought that the text in Isaiah is not for us today, that it's from a God who's different to us in the church, then see it again in Romans 9. The Romans verse is from the God who's full of grace. It's from the God who's full of mercy. It's from a God who sent his son to die for his people, the one who loves us beyond measure. And here he is in both testaments, both the old and the new, saying the same thing. You see, God has not changed, nor will he ever change. His authority still stands. He he remains high above us, even when he bends down low to us. God said this this is to his people in Isaiah's day. He said it before in chapter 29 of Isaiah. He'll say it again in chapter 64. This idea of the potter and clay is not something we are to quickly skim past It's not just a simple head nod, okay, God, you're the potter, I'm the clay, so now let's get on to the good stuff. No, God lets us know in both Testaments, and this time for a second time in Isaiah, that the clay is never on the same level as the potter. And the clay is not to question the potter's motives or his works or the results of his works. That last part's a lot harder, isn't it? It's easy to look at other people and see them questioning God's motives and his work. And by God's grace, we may see it in ourselves. But rarely are we aware of how often we complain of the results of his work. Just ask ourselves a few questions. How often do we not like who God puts over us? We think we know better. How often do we complain how God has made things to be in our life? Who are we to question God? He said that we are made from the dust of the ground in Genesis. God is the one who breathed life into us, but somehow we think we know more about life and eternal things. And notice in Isaiah 45, the picture of the potter and clay is concerning creation, questioning and complaining to the one who formed us. 
And then when it's used again in Romans 9, 20, the picture of the potter in clay is about salvation. Who are we to question God who is and who is not saved? We're not the ones who formed the plan of salvation. We are not the ones who volunteered to die on the cross for others. The plan of salvation was determined long ago in eternity past among the Godhead. The Father decided way before creation of the world to send his Son to die for his people and not all people. The atoning work of Christ is finished and it's complete for those God has already decided to grant repentance to. You see, this is all about the doctrine of election. The people don't decide who is saved. God does. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 9. We know that because of the question he anticipates people to ask in verse 19. Why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul responds with the potter and the clay picture from Isaiah. And then he goes on to say this about it. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Back in Isaiah, what he was doing was not just answering a complaint about Cyrus, a pagan. He's anticipated objections that the Jews would raise against God's sovereign act in adopting Gentiles as part of his people. Because of what he said up in verse 8 of chapter 45 in Isaiah. God's salvation and righteousness, not just to the Jews, but going all over the earth. You see, ultimately, what verse 8 was referring to was the worldwide spreading of the gospel. As if it were an infringement on Israel's national privilege. So Paul quotes it in Romans 9 and says, Not only does God's people include both Jew and Gentile, God has already determined who it will be. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And it is those whom he determines will confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that Christ is Lord, that he, the Savior, was raised from the dead. Who are we to question that? Don't think, though, that what Isaiah is trying to do, or Paul for that matter, is trying to stifle all questions to God. God permits questions to him. In fact, he even encourages us to ask questions. In verse 9 in Isaiah, it is not an embarrassing question that God needs to avoid, nor is it one that doesn't have a good answer. What we're being told is don't murmur, don't struggle with what God has decided and with what he's doing. Don't contest his power and authority. 
Don't assume we can translate our values and our understanding and put them on an eternal scale. We are quite out of our league in the infinite and the sovereign sphere from creation to salvation. In verse 10, God reiterates this. If it's wrong for a child to scold and find fault with his parents for bringing him into the world, then it's wrong to find fault with God for his dealings with us. This is God once more declaring his sovereignty. God is once more declaring his superiority to everything, from all the false gods to the folly of man. The Lord exhorts all nations, all peoples, to turn to him for salvation. We are not to question his ways or to complain how he does it or in any way disapprove. It is wise to submit and to trust God's infinite wisdom and his goodness in our lives, especially in salvation. We have an example of grumbling earlier in the Bible. You may remember in Exodus 16, we read after God liberated his people from Egypt that the Israelites were complaining about Moses and Aaron. However, in reality, who is it that they're complaining to? In verse 8 of Exodus 16, Moses said, Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You see, when you complain about anything, it can be the rain or how hot it is. It can be how you look about your hair or the shape of your nose, about what you have or what you don't have, what you're not included in or what others are doing, the music in the church or how hard the Christian life is or what God is or is not doing in your life when you do those things. You are not just complaining to yourself or to those around you. It can be verbal, in person or in the phone. It can be a post on social media. It can be a text, any form. What you're doing is actually complaining to God Almighty. You are murmuring and criticizing the creator, the sovereign ruler of the universe, You're insulting and offending God. You have forgotten your place. Here's the danger we need to pay careful attention to. When left unchecked, when we forget our role in our relationship with God and we begin to complain or ask criticizing questions, it can lead to ingratitude. It can become the stiffening of pride, distrust, and then rebellion, and ultimately the death of faith. The cure for complaining is to remember our Creator in all that He has done. See His handiwork. Know that He has eternal rights as Sovereign Lord. Remember more than that. Remember that He is a good God who cares. Not like the idols... Those false gods that can do nothing, look at how God cares for you. See Christ. Be thankful that Christ died for you, that he has included you in his family by adopting you and giving you eternal life. 
Those of you who are Christians, do you realize he has given you something so much greater than this life? Everything in your life now, you have something better if you have Christ. Eternal life with him is yours through faith in Christ, by God's mercy and his grace. So remember your role in your relationship with God and what he has begun with you. Remember, it's his doing by giving you faith in Christ. As creator and savior, it's his relationship to do with it what he will and your life in him to do what he will. I spent a good bit of time on this first lesson, I know, but we have to get this one right. We need God to work this into our soul if we want to move on to the next three. Let me do that quickly. Number two, the second lesson for us is remain humble toward God. See, we had to begin with our role in the relationship. You have to know your role with God in order to remain humble. Because verse 11 is applying the warnings in verses 9 and 10. It takes our role in this relationship with God and then explains how we are to live in that role. It does it in the form of a question. God says, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? God is the one who sets things to come. He makes the future happen. For the Israelites, it was Cyrus coming. For us, it's the outworking of God's grace in our lives. His power transforming us into true worshipers. Becoming useful tools, ready for the day when Christ returns. Notice God says there, he is the Holy One of Israel. What he's pointing out is that only he is the one that always does what is right. He's the Holy One. So don't presume to know everything there is about God or what he's doing in your life or in others. Like you know what his next move will be. None of us do. We are dependent on God for what is right. What that means is then is that we need to be humble, taking the lower place in this close relationship with God. That is where you and I belong. The relationship that God has with us. Hear me clearly when I say that this relationship with God, it is a tender, enduring, comforting, life-giving relationship. But we are never on the same level as God. Being humble and at times having to pray for more humility keeps us secure in the sovereign good care of God. God reminds us in Proverbs 22 verse 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Keep in mind, this is not financial riches. It's receiving the riches of God's grace in Ephesians. The abundance of life that Jesus taught in John. And the honor of God saying that you have a seat at his table. Those who remain humble toward God have the honor of being with God. And recognize humility has to come from the heart. It's not an act 
that you do. It's not a performance that we do. It's not being puffed up in pride, thinking you can question the Almighty. It's counting others more significant than yourself, wanting their good, not looking at your interest alone, but also theirs. Seeing your life is to be lived out, not for yourself, but for only the glory of God. Desiring his name to be lifted up, not your own. Wanting his plan to be your plan and for it to be fulfilled. Remaining humble is always looking to Christ. Seeing his life was a series of sufferings. And then looking at your own life, not complaining about it, instead emptying yourself of all human rights, knowing that God has given you the right to live and be with him even though you don't deserve it. Remember your role. Remain humble. And then number three in verse 12, revere God in his glory. This verse reminds us of God's unapproachable greatness. The sheer magnitude of God's glory stretches the heavens. It goes on for all eternity. Look at what God says of himself in there in verse 12. Get a sense when God says, I created the earth and created man on it. Spend time thinking what that truly means. God spoke And the physical existence of the world came into being. This is more than just six days of creation. It's power in the purest and grandest scale. Nothing can compare to God. Can you think of anything more awesome than speaking something into existence? There's only one thing. Not only can God bring things to life, he can bring them back to life. When he walked the earth, he raised dead people to life to show he and he alone is God. And he now takes those who are spiritually dead and he gives new life in them. He goes on and he says, It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. You see, Christ stretched out his hands and commanded the sins of his people to be forgiven forever. He goes on to say in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky is handiwork. And now it's Christ who declares the glory of God and his handiwork in salvation through the message of the gospel. Do you revere God in his glory Does it unsettle you when God says, I am the Lord and there is no other? I don't mean that in a frightening way, but are you awestruck and drawn to God? When you are admiring God for who he is, there's no room to complain. There's only reverence and worship. Take time to learn of God's attributes. Fill your thoughts with what we know about God in his word, and your grumbling will be replaced with praising him. So remember your role. Remain humble, revere God in his glory. And number four, in the last verse of our passage, verse 13, relish God's good and perfect plan. This verse is another assurance that God is sovereign. 
meaning he is in control. And his appointment of Cyrus is from him. Cyrus is the plan, and it's a good plan and a right plan. God made a way for his people to return and build the city that was the center of his worship. They were set free, not by accident, but through God appointing Cyrus. Cyrus didn't decide it. God did alone. God has made a plan for him to get the glory, and that plan includes the rescue of his people. He's made a way for us to come to him and worship, not by accident, but through Christ's work on the cross. Take delight in God's plan of salvation. He has overcome all obstacles. He smashes all the chains that held you back from him. His plan that includes all your experiences, all your sufferings, is all geared toward making you fit for his kingdom where you enjoy who he is forever. You see, what goes on in this life does not continue forever. Only God and all that he touches continues forever, and all who are in Christ then continue forever. Any experience that you have, good or bad, it will end in this life. Those of us who've been given eternal life, what is it that we have to complain? Remember your role with God. Remain humble toward him. Revere him in his glory and relish God's good and perfect plan. These truths are gifts to us to practice because Christ attained our role with God. He humbled himself for our humility. He shows us his glory and he is God's good and perfect plan. If we keep Christ always before us, And if we have him in mind in these four lessons when we are tempted to grumble and to complain, if we take them to heart, and if we depend on Christ, asking God to plant these truths down deep within us, the danger of showing contempt for God will pass from us, and our faith will be renewed in Christ. His love will become sweeter, and our hearts will be filled with worship. What did bother us? Before salvation no longer will because we have Christ and he's all that we need. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for these passages that are warnings to your people that keep us on the straight and narrow. Father, I pray that all here will take heed and to listen to your warnings that you have, that these are good things to us. They are encouragements that keep us coming to you. Oh, Father, forgive us for when we do complain. Father, lift our eyes up to what those of us in Christ truly have. We have the riches of your grace. God, I pray that you will help us, lift us up, give us an eternal view of not only our lives, but the life of the church, the life of our family, all those around us. Transform us into your Son by the working of your Spirit. Help us to see that you and you alone have the rights and that your love is what has kept us in. Father, keep us humble. Help us to remember our role with you as worshipers and vessels and how good of a place that is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.